0: What I receive when I'm in the service of another human being is greater than anything that I've ever found. Um, and I think that that's what I would like people to know, that if, you, if you're willing to dig down in this thing and, and find yourself, what you'll find is, is a heart that's willing to give. And when you give, you receive.
1: Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak Well, howdy, folks. That thar was the voice of Mr. Patrick B. You heard at the beginning of this episode, and you're going to hear much more from him in just a moment, and I know you're going to enjoy uh, Patrick's story. But first things first, this episode is brought to you by Janice R. and Ben P. Janice R. and Ben P., Went to our website, soberspeak.com. They clicked on the donate tab and made a contribution. Thank you so, so much, Janisar and Ben P., for your generosity. This episode is for you. So, We are here at another episode of Sober Speak. I just flew in from out of town today, and boy are my arms tired. Just kidding, that's a long joke, but it has been a very long week, but I was excited to get back uh, in front of the uh, microphone and record an introduction for this episode, and uh, I just want to continue to say thank you, Thank you. Thank you. I know I've said it before, but I can feel your energy through the emails, through the messages I receive on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, And I know that you are out there. I see the download numbers. I know that there are so, so many people listening to this. And as I said last week, it makes me feel like we are in this together doing God's work, and and I'm so, so thankful for you guys, and I, w- I would love, I would absolutely love to reach out through this microphone and give every one of you a big physical hug. Now, I, I don't think that's possible yet. The technology's come a long way, but I don't think I can do that, but since I can't give you a physical hug, I'm going to give you a mmm, Mm-mm, there you go, a virtual hug. And I know that there are going to be people out there that don't like hugs. I, I know you are out there and I will respect your virtual boundaries, I guess. So just ignore that last statement. Maybe just pretend like it never happened. Anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's good to be here in front of the mic again. So I was thinking on my trip back, why why do I continue to do this podcast? And I, I just have to continue to remind myself of why I'm doing it, why I take the time out to do this. And for whatever reason, page 28 in the big book popped into my head. And I'm going to read this uh, this uh, chapter here, excuse me, this uh, paragraph, and, um, and the, the quote that I was thinking of. And it says, we in turn sought the same escape with the desperation of drowning men what seemed at first a flimsy, a flimsy read has proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. A new life has been given us, or if you prefer a design for living that really works. And that quote right there, a design for living, that really works is what drives me to do this. Let me put it this way. I want people to have exposure to this design for living. Uh, When I came into AA, I was absolutely scared to death, but I did notice a core group of people right off the bat that had what I wanted. I identified with them and I wanted to be like them. All of these people um, they, they worked the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and they had a good working knowledge of the big book. I want to pass that on to others. I want to pass on what was so freely given to me with absolutely nothing expected in return. And according to my sponsor, who was part of that core group and is still my sponsor today, my only responsibility, as he put it, was to pass on that message to others. And I am, I am so, so not perfect at passing it on, but i am been doing it for now for a few 24 hours, and I am so thankful. I have to tell you, I am so thankful for the people that went before me and the people that continue to pass it on to me today. There's a story of a, I hope I get this right, there's a story of a little girl who went on vacation and she visited all the great cathedrals in Europe. And when she was in Europe and visiting these cathedrals, she looked up at the stained glass and she asked somebody who was there, who are the people in the stained glass? And they commented, those are the angels. And when she returned home, From visiting those cathedrals, she was asked by her friends and family what she had done while she was on vacation. And she said that she had seen the angels. And they asked her who the angels were. And she said the angels were the people who let the light in. And that's who you all have been for me. You've not been the light, but you have been the ones who let the light in and continue to let the light in. And I am so, so thankful for you and for those who came before you. Keep in mind, I would appreciate you sharing this podcast with two or three family members. Uh, Either share an episode, or if it moved you, or share a... Uh, the, uh, the, the podcast as a whole, it's a great way to support the show and I truly would appreciate it. Um, also remember we have a secret Facebook group to protect anonymity and, uh, The way you get in it is be by being invited by somebody in the group already, or you can send me your email address. Send it to me at John at Soberspeak.com. That's J O H N at Soberspeak.com. Send me your email address that is associated to your Facebook account, and I can send you an invite. There are there are so many amazing like-minded, like-minded, excuse me, not like-minded, uh, like-minded friends of Vilduvia, uh, Al-Anon, and other step groups in there. Also remember, you can follow me on Instagram at, at SoberSpeak, all one word. I read all of my direct messages and I would love to hear from you. We will have listener feedback at the end of this episode, but now on to Mr. Patrick B. Enjoy. Okay, everybody. So today we are sitting here with Mr. Patrick B. from Minnesota. Can you say hello to everybody, Mr. Patrick?
0: Hello out there in podcast land.
1: (laughs) So Patrick is uh, from Minnesota. He's actually in Minnesota right now. Uh, and I think when I talked to you yesterday, you said the sun is shining and the snow is melting. Is that correct?
0: I saw brown grass today for the first time in months. <laughs> we're, we're making progress up here in the tundra. <laughs> that's great. The sun is out again today, and it's uh, approaching sixty degrees. So it's,
1: All right, sixty uh, degrees. Wow, that's wonderful, great.
0: Wonderful spring day.
1: That's great. All right, so. Uh, you know, we're, we're, I know we're going to cover a lot of ground with Patrick today. So I'm just going to start out by asking you a question about, I know that you have a, uh, a love, if you will, a passion for the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 steps. And, uh, why don't we start there and then we'll kind of go back a little from there and we'll just kind of cover your story.
0: Okay. Well, I was, um, I was first introduced to the 12 steps by a um, a counselor in a 28 day treatment facility, my one and only treatment, um, who after a very sort of brief intake interview um, understood who he was looking at and handed me the book and looked me directly in the eyes and said, this may be the only shot you have at any kind of a life. which I you know, immediately took some offense to, but I did take the book and I, that night I, I sat down and I began to read um, from the middle, like many alcoholics do, I just opened up to the middle. Um, and it intrigued me so much what I found and I identified with what I found um, that I went back to the beginning and, and read almost all the way through the first 164 pages that first night. And I knew that I had found something that explained to me the nature of why I drank and used the way that I did and, and also that I, I didn't have to do it anymore if I was willing to do the work that was in the book. Now, of course, I didn't know what that entailed at the time, but it, it, it gave me what I think the book refers to as a mustard seed of willingness. And I was um, intrigued. And the next AA meeting that came to the facility from, from AA members, um, I asked a guy to, if he would sponsor me. He agreed. And he started to show up every Saturday for the next, well, I don't know, three or four months. And we made our way through that book. And I haven't found it necessary to pick up a drink since.
1: And what's your sobriety date again?
0: My sobriety date is... December 22nd of 2003.
1: Right before Christmas.
0: Yeah, I was a Christmas baby. I, uh, it was, um, it was, you know, my family has a history. I, I was raised in a, in a family in which alcoholism has really racked, um, the family and my father had a penchant for, um, going to detox or getting arrested in and around the holidays, and um, I followed suit with that. My sister, the the, uh, Black Belt Al-Anon, can pretty much lay all of that out for you, Um, but um, yeah, it was the idea that, that I would ruin yet another holiday with my family. That was part of the reason, and the other reason was that I was physically expiring.
1: So So let's go back there a little bit. You talked about your family a little bit, obviously there's some alcoholism in the family. Uh, Do you have one sister, at least we know of what about brothers?
0: I have uh, two brothers, both older. One is deceased. He died of alcoholism in my arms when I was seven years sober. Um, You know, he uh, I introduced him to this way of life, but he, he made a decision not to avail himself of it. So I had the experience of, uh, of walking him and his family through the end stages of his alcoholism, which was one of the most difficult periods of my recovery, but also just a level of grace and, and, and love that um, I never knew that I'd be able to experience in recovery. You know, I was there, I was present. I was able to show up in a way for my family that I'd never been able to show up for during that very difficult time. Um, as a young man, I watched my father drink himself to death. Um, I was 23 when he passed. Um, I'm 50, 59 now. Um, so it was, you know, many, many years ago, but he, uh, you know, I, I, at that time I knew that I, that, you know, I would never be an alcoholic. I just knew I was a daily drinker at that point, of course, but I was in that phase of, of the disease in which, you know, I will never be like him. Um, and I w- already was, I, I know that now. Uh, but there's a long history of, of alcoholism in my immediate family. I don't know much about the extended family past that. I know that my my maternal grandparents were both sober people. Um, I don't know what the drinking looked like on my father's side because I was, I came along pretty late. My father was 45 when I was born, so there was a significant gap. Um, I just know that he was an alcoholic and that in my family, um, my mother um, struggled with alcohol as well. Um, and both my brothers, my oldest brother, uh, found his way to sobriety, um, in a different, on a different path. He, he hasn't had a drink in 35 years. He is not a member of AA. Um, he went to one AA meeting at the beginning and found, found a way to achieve sobriety on his own. He did have a significant alcohol problem. He, uh, he parked his car in his living room twice. Um, so that'll That'll indicate to
1: that <laughs> that'll qualify you huh?
0: <laughs> that that, that uh, there might have been some issues, but he found his way to sobriety um, a long time ago. And he was actually instrumental in, in sort of uh, getting me into a detox unit and, and treatment um, in the last days of my drinking as well. He was present there as well.
1: So, so you said both your dad and your brother died of this disease, yes, your brother I, actually I, in your arms.
0: Yes, yes. Um, my, my my father died. Uh, he had a, a car accident. Um, he was driving too slow. That was his penchant. He was driving too slow on a wintry night here in Minnesota, and uh, he was overtaken by a semi and, and uh, thrown into the ditch. Um, he was under the influence at that time. But in those days, you didn't, you know, the disease wasn't as open. Um, and so when he went to the hospital, um, nobody in the family revealed that he was an alcoholic. So he had broken his neck and and during surgery, he had a grand mal seizure because of the withdrawal process. And this was the next day. It was 24 hours later. They stabilized him in the emergency room and then they decided to do surgery. And because of his withdrawals, um, he had a grand mal seizure on the table and was in a persistent vegetative state for, the next seven months during which I visited him the grand total of one time, um, which will tell you where I was with selfishness and self-centeredness at the time. I was much you more
1: 23 at the time. I, I was, think?
0: I was 23 and, and, you know, a budding alcoholic for sure. I picked up when I was 13 and um, I immediately dropped out of school in order to sort of surround myself with the party lifestyle. I went to work at 14 years old so I could, so I could drink.
1: So and going back to your brother again, I think you said you were 10 months sober when he passed. I was, I was,
0: I was seven years sober.
1: You're seven yeah. years. I'm sorry. Yep. Seven
0: years sober. Yep.
1: So walk me through that experience a little bit and with the family and uh, sure. what that meant to you.
0: Sure. So I, um, I remember clearly the day I got a call from my niece, his, his oldest child, um, and her name is is Jamie and Jamie called me and said um, um, that uh, Patrick, it's getting bad with dad. Can you please come down and and just do what you can? You know, obviously the family knew that I had achieved a level of recovery um, by that time. And so I got in the car as soon as I could and and drove to Omaha where they live. he and my father had had a very contentious relationship um, around his marriage to, a, to the woman that was the mother of his children and his wife until he died. Um, and so I, um, he had moved to Omaha very young. Um, I think he was about 20, 21 when he moved to Omaha. So he raised his family in Omaha. Um, and I drove to Omaha from Minneapolis. And uh, my brother had already been diagnosed with liver failure at that point. And that was, that began sort of a two year, two and a half year walk um, to the end for him. Um, you know, he, he was told very explicitly by many doctors that if you continue to drink, it will kill you. We have a small chance of saving you if, if you don't. Um, and um, shortly thereafter, because you know, when you have liver disease, your brain function is, is compromised to some degree. Um, he had a, a, a slight accident with his shoulder in which he sprained or, or or cracked his shoulder or something. And he was handed a bottle of Oxycontin um, by a doctor who didn't realize what his addiction history was. Well, essentially that became, you know, a bottle and a pill for him. Um, and that's what he walked out of his life with was, was a, a severe addiction to painkillers. Um, he didn't actively drink uh, much after that, but he did seek out um, the opiates um pretty strongly and and that's eventually what really uh created the situation that killed him
1: and you said you dropped out of school at thirteen is that right but
0: i did I dropped out of school when I was thirteen years old i you know i i uh, my friend and I was fascinated with drinking because it was all around me all the time and on a on a on a hot summer day, a friend of mine and I um got some dude in a parking lot of the liquor store up the street to uh to buy us a 12 pack of old style beer and uh nothing nothing better than a warm old style on a hot summer day uh, <laughs> i still remember the taste i almost spit it out when i did but uh he drank three of those beers that day and got sick and i drank nine and and uh wobbled home from that first encounter with alcohol wondering when i'd get to do it again. Um, and I assumed that that was everybody's experience. I later read in the, in the doctor's opinion, of course, that, that I had the allergy um, and that it was manifest in me from the beginning. Alcohol hijacked my life the moment that I put it into my system in any quantity. Um, and I, I know that now. I know that, that at age 13, my, my decisions almost, you know, the course of my life changed that day. Um, and that that alcohol began to make those decisions, and alcoholism began to make the decisions for my life um, on that summer day in in nineteen seventy two. So uh,
1: yeah. So you drank from how many years? So from thirteen to what? When did you sober? Forty.
0: Up? I w- I f- I was forty four years old when I sobered up. I had a thirty one year drinking career, and probably twenty. I'd say twenty eight of that was a daily drinker.
1: So. Obviously something got you into Alcoholics Anonymous. Was there any particular turning point that made that happen?
0: Uh, um, there was, there was, uh, in, in, um, in April of 2003, uh, the last three or four years of my drinking, obviously I was having to wake up every a couple of hours and, and drink. You know, I, I had pretty severe DTs and, and, um, you know, I would shake badly if I didn't get alcohol into my system at least every couple of hours. And for the last two or three years, you know, maybe three or four mornings a week, I would have pretty serious chest pains as well. Um, And, you know, when you've got one answer to life, good day, you drink, bad day, you drink, middling day, you drink, you just drink. um, You know, I would always um, calm those chest pains with a a drink. Um, One particular Saturday morning, I, I woke up Um, and I had been on sort of even a a bender that was rather epic, even for my standards at that point. And I hadn't eaten in a couple of days and I was very hungry. Um, and I went to a local Denny's restaurant, um, just a couple of blocks up the street. and, And I lived in a neighborhood, you know, one of the things that I never did was get a driver's license. I didn't have a driver's license until I got to recovery. And I never drove a car because when I was young, I saw my friends going to jail And for drinking and driving, and it wasn't the idea of going to jail that bothered me. It was the fact that maybe I wouldn't get to drink um, if I did go to jail. So, so I never got a driver's license when I was young. So I lived in a neighborhood in which I could walk to everything I could, I could find. I could walk to my job. I could walk to the, to the mailbox. And and this will just indicate to you the level in which alcohol was really constructed my life and alcoholism. Um, That all of my decisions about where I lived and. In the neighborhood, in the city, um, and where I worked, I worked in a bar for you know, I worked in bars for twenty some odd years. Um, was made around alcohol, but this particular day, I uh, I went in in ate, but I, I made a kind of a grave mistake for for me, and I, I didn't get a drink in me that morning until um, it was well. It, as it turns out, it was too late. Um, walking home from that breakfast. Um, my chest and, and um, left my left arm started to go numb um, and my chest started to lock up in a way that it previously had and it was really serious. And I knew kind of that the jig was up, you know, when you've watched 30,000 hours of, Television with a drink in your hand, as I had um, over the years. You, right. become, you become a medical expert. On that. <laughs> that's right. I, don't know, I don't know if you knew that, but,
1: but uh, I'm not a doctor, but I, I play uh, one on TV.
0: Exactly. Uh, I was playing one on TV that day, and uh, I knew what was going on. So, um, and I also knew that I needed to call nine one one because it was real serious. But, but when I got home, I think you can predict what I did before I called nine one one. That's the level of I had a drink. Needed a drink, so I took a drink and I called 911, and they took me to the hospital um, and did a cardiac intervention on me, where they go up through your aorta, um, through your groin and aorta, and they placed a stent in my heart and uh, and saved my life. And um, in the, you know, I had expressed in the ambulance and wanted to stop. And uh, and in post surgery, I was up in the cardiac intensive care ward, and my sister and my mother are standing there. Now these are two women who have watched their collectively their husband and father die. And now they've got the baby child. You know, I was no baby at the time, I was 43 years old, but um, I'm laying there um, obviously in a very compromised position. You know, I've got the oxygen in and, and IVs in both arms and they've got me compressed to the bed because I had a big hematoma from the surgery site. And, and so they had me in a, in a compression bed where I couldn't really move. I wasn't strapped down, but essentially I was nailed to the bed in a, in a fashion and the woman from the HCMC Chemical Dependency Unit came in and said, Mr. Bale, you indicated that you've, that you've uh, wanted some help with your alcoholism. Uh, and in that moment, uh, what came out of my mouth was, oh, that's okay, I got this. And, and it makes me think of page 24 of, I, of our book in the italics where it says, you know, you have no effective mental defense against the first drink and says the the suffering of even a week or a month ago isn't sufficient. Well, in my case, apparently, it's about the suffering of even – an hour, an hour and a half ago. Mm. Um, And my mind has the capacity to wipe that out. Um, And I left that hospital um, a day and a half later and picked up a drink immediately and and began to display even behavior that my insanity couldn't, that even my insane alcoholic mind couldn't rationalize. I have medicine that's going to save my life in one hand every morning and I'm washing it down with a tumbler full of whiskey every day. And it's got those big orange labels on the bottles, on the, on the prescriptions bottles, you know, the ones that say, do not take with alcohol, that everybody that's an alcoholic takes with alcohol. So that's, that's that right. was, that was, I the, understand. and, and, you know, so there was a nine month period of, of, of this where I knew that if I continued to drink, I was going to die, but I couldn't stop drinking. And, and I believe that I, I really began to have the essence of my first step experience in those nine months. I had some indication that I was powerless over alcohol, but, but you weren't going to convince me that my life was unmanageable because I was always able to keep a roof over my head, even if I was lying, cheating, stealing and do to do it. Um, you know, I, I kept up appearances. Um, I guess, you know, in some terms you could call me a functional alcoholic, although I don't know how, how well I was functioning. Um, but at that point, um, you know, it, um, it it was, it was pretty obvious to me that I was in some trouble.
1: Okay, Patrick. So that was the nine month period between when you, when you had your heart attack and when you got sober from April, 2003, up until when you got sober up at December 22nd. So was there anything, do you, do you remember your first meeting on December 22nd?
0: I, 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 remember my first meeting very vividly. On December 18th of 2003, the last month of my drinking, I had been sitting at my kitchen table with a loaded shotgun and a bottle of whiskey, kind of trying to find that golden spot where I could, my, uh, my, you know, I could, I could get that thing in my mouth and, and do what I never really wanted to do. I was, I was one of those guys that would tell you he wanted to kill himself, but the truth is, is I just wanted the pain to stop. I really didn't want to die. I, I just didn't want to drink anymore. Um, and for about that last month, and, and you got to remember, John, this last year of this is really kind of hazy for me. A lot of this has been reported to me. It's not really recall because I was in sort of a, a an extended blackout, um, not necessarily even from intoxication, but just the despondency and the depression of, of where I was. Um, My sister reported to me that on the 18th of December in 2003, that I had uh, placed a call to my older brother and he came over and he was a, he was a, I had mentioned earlier, he was a Vietnam war vet. So he immediately cleared the shotgun from the room um, and cleared the gun out of it because it was loaded um, and called her. And, you know, my assumption at the time was that they were both going to help me. And in my, my sick mind at the time, help would have been, you know, nice large check and a ride to the liquor store and a carton of cigarettes and a pat on the back and, you know, a little bit of encouragement that, hey, you'll be okay. Well, my sister's been in a member of Al-Anon since she was 18 years old and she's well into her 60s now. So you can imagine the the level of black beltedness that she was carrying at the time. (laughs) Um, And growing up in that alcoholic home, she and I were like peas and carrots. Both my brothers were out of the home when most of my father's really serious bad alcoholism was happening and, and she and I caught the brunt of that. And we were like peas and carrots, you know, when it was her turn in the barrel, I'd stand for her. When it was my turn in the barrel, she'd stand for me. And, and it was probably the only relationship in my life, John, that I wouldn't be able to just openly disregard if you told me that my drinking was a problem. And she looked me right in the eye and, and said, what I, at the time, what I thought was the cruelest thing in the world, but I now know, that having done my amends with her, that was one of the hardest things she's ever said to anyone. She said to me that night, Patrick, if you don't do something about your drinking, um, I, I, I can never speak to you again. Um, and I knew she meant it. I, I just knew she meant it. And I found myself with my coat on and I said, okay, you're running the show from here on out, which is something that I've never said to anyone. Um, And she took me to the same inner city detox that my, uh, my uh, father had rotated in and out of some 25 times. Um, and she dropped me off there and said, you've got to ask in yourself. I'm not going to do it for you. And she drove away. And so I asked in because it was December 18th of 2003 and it was cold as hell outside, um, in Minnesota. So I, um, So I I went up the elevator and and they admitted me and and a man of my standing and accomplishment, you know, needs a certain level of accommodation. So I immediately began to complain about the nature of mine in that facility. And they asked me uh, a nice question. They said, Mr. Bill, would you like, uh, would you like an upgrade to the quiet? And I (laughs) said, time somebody started paying attention to my need and they, uh, they placed me in what essentially was a broom closet with, sort of a urine-smelling uh, mat on the floor and gave me a big hypo of something or other, and, uh, and so I wouldn't seize up on them and lock the door. There was a little observation slot in the in the door that would open up every hour and look and see if I was still breathing, but that was the extent that they wanted to deal with me and my uh, my needs that night. And the next morning, I, there was a uh, an audible knock on the door and, and the next day, it was a, It would have been a Saturday, and it was in the afternoon. They said, Patrick, or early evening, Patrick, a, Alcoholics Anonymous is here. Do you want to go to the meeting? Now, I wouldn't give you a plug nickel for AA at the time because I had watched my father rotate in and out of AA for many years, and he obviously died from the disease. So, having an opinion about an experience I hadn't had yet, um, I I just dismissed Alcoholics Anonymous as having any any you know, effect or, or good uh, intention.
1: Do you remember any sort of feedback that your father had regarding his uh, experience? I do in the
0: eighties. I remember him and my mother talking about it. My mother would ask him, John, how are the meetings? And, and this was a time in Minnesota when the big book wasn't really actively engaged in AA, the treatment centers were blossoming. Uh, People were sitting in a circle and essentially having, you know, group, uh, without a moderator, you know, or, or with a psychotic moderator, of, you know, a, a three months sober alcoholic or somebody as the as the as the GSR, um, and I remember him clearly saying that that you know Francis all they do is sit around and complain about their lives, and that's not something that my father would have done. He was a depression era guy. He was a World War Two vet. Um, you know, he wasn't he wasn't somebody who was who was willing to listen the people sit around and tell you how bad it is when they drove up in a nice car and and were wearing decent clothes and had something to eat. Um, you know, he grew up in a in a in a in a place in Minnesota where that wasn't always the case. He was poor as a kid and and uh, and was a Depression era guy and, and a World War II guy. So you know, he uh, he had some sense of ex- overblown values that, that 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 wasn't for him. Um, I I'm sure at some point somebody in in that was that. that was trying to help him handed him a big book uh my guess is is he just thanked them and then put it in a drawer somewhere and never picked it up uh
1: and that's very intriguing to me also that you ended up in the same uh, treatment center or whatever you want to call it uh, it. detoxing detoxing unit, 20 plus times that he was there or you weren't there he was there 20 plus times how did you feel about it when you checked into there i mean well
0: my sister had taken had 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 to pick him up there over many, many occasions. My mother's way of dealing with my father's alcoholism was to make my sister go get him. Um, you know, she being a full-blown Al-Anon herself, uh, she would voice that upon my sister. Um, and I, you know, that's long since my sister's long since dealt with a lot of that. Thank God for Al-Anon. But uh, um, I just, you know, it was the only place she knew to take a drunk honestly and and so and it was close it was close to my house it wasn't that far away and it was christmas week and my sister had stuff to do and she wasn't having it she just said this is the place you're going uh and i knew that that's the place that he had picked because i had been with a couple of times because she had to put me in the car and take me with because my mother would be intoxicated or whatever so um you know as i said alcohol was ravaging our family um so that night she dropped me off and, and the next day, you know, they knocked on the door and, and six members of a group of Alcoholics Anonymous came, uh, drove on a snowy night, um, 10 degrees and snowing. And I can't remember what was said in the meeting that night or who even was there. I, I, I just remember having one sort of obsessive thought, what the hell are these people doing here? Why would they come voluntarily come to this stinkhole? Um, it, because you know it's an inner city detox, and it smelled like one, and and uh, wasn't a very pleasant place. Uh, it was it was a active, overly crowded detox unit in an inner city, and and uh, and these people voluntarily came to to carry a message of Alcoholics Anonymous, and and I, I couldn't get the thought of my, out of my head. Why would you do that? It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. And so I pulled one old boy up. I pulled one old boy aside after the meeting. And I, I apologize, I always get emotional when I think about this. but I said, what are you doing here? Why the hell would you come here on your own? And and he looked at me with with the softest blue eyes I've ever seen in my life. And and he said, kid, I got a better deal out of this than you ever. And something inside of me shifted just a bit. And so I asked the next question and I said, uh, I heard another really strange noise coming out of my mouth. And that was, well, how do you get that? And he said, just keep coming. Um, and so they had arranged a direct transfer from that detox unit to a treatment facility, uh, earlier in the day, which I had, you know, uh, willfully refused. Um, and after that encounter with that, that gentleman who I've never seen again, by the way, wow, um, just a responsible member of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, who was carrying the message that night, um, he, I went to the front desk and I said, you know, I'll I'll take that direct transfer. And so the following Monday morning, I was transferred to a 28 day inpatient treatment facility in which the following day um, at that intake, that counselor handed me the big book of alcoholics anonymous and introduced me to the recovery process known as the 12 steps. So, um,
1: all right, so let me do a little, announcement here then we'll get back uh we will be continuing our conversation with patrick b in just a moment just a reminder you were listening to sober speak you can find us on the web at soberspeak.com uh you can also find the donate button on our website if you wish to use it if and only if the spirit moves you keep in mind this is a podcast funded by you the listener sober speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Mr. Patrick. All right, so you went to your first meeting. You got your first big book. Uh, Kind of take me from there.
0: Well, um, as I said, uh, some members of Alcoholics Anonymous came into that 28-day inpatient treatment facility Um, And a guy that sounded like he knew what he was talking about, um, I found attractive and I just, I said, you know, um, can you explain to me what this book's about? And he said, what you're asking me to do is to sponsor you. So he, he, you know, he just began to explain to me the nature of of the process from the beginning. And he says, what we'll do is we'll, I'll come here once a week and we'll sit down and we'll go through this book and you'll take all the actions that are indicated in the print and you'll have an experience um, that will help you stay sober and then allow you to go help other people, which I thought at the time obviously was absolute hogwash. You know, all I wanted to do was get sober. I thought Alcoholics Anonymous was about receiving something. I didn't know that it was about learning how to give something away. Um, and, and, uh, but, but he, and, and I was in very difficult mental and physical condition, John, I was compromised uh, physically. As I said, I was, was dying so i had some very struggled you know i when when bill writes about his first six months and some of the depression and i can identify with that i i had a lot of physical struggles i had a lot of mental struggles um and i needed to be in facilities um they sent me to a 90 day relapse prevention program which was essentially sober living with with a high level of structure after that 28 day treatment uh, because i didn't have anywhere to go you know I, i i owed $5,000 in back rent. And my, as soon as I got out of the the place, as soon as I went to treatment, um, you know, they packed my stuff up and put it in my mom's basement and said, you know, good riddance. Um, So, um, you know, I needed that 90 day bed and then from there they recommended that I go to sober living and I, I, you know, having nowhere else to go, I agreed to that too. And I needed every minute of, of those structured environments and able to be put together a recovery routine. And, and, you know, I started to go to four or five meetings a week. Um, and, and I became sort of an enthusiastic member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, uh, it was really a a, 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 a time in my life when I could reorient myself to what it was I knew. Um, I was struck with the spirit of service almost immediately. And, uh, and, um, you know, I, I, I wanted to be helpful. I, I began to have an experience post-inventory with the work that indicated to me that my life needed to be um, dedicated to the service of others. And and so um, I did that. You know, early on in that process of sober living, I, having this orientation, I I decided that I would seek employment. And having been un- unemployable for about the last five years of my drinking, I realized pretty quickly that I had I had very uh, limited skills to, to operate in the world. Um, I was a high school dropout. Um, so I woke up at 44 years old with no marketable job skills, no education, and, and a, you know, um, a very serious case of, of uh, post-acute withdrawal and, and alcoholism. Um, and Alcoholics Anonymous really put me back on my feet and allowed me to, to begin to get my education. I, I got my GED while I was living in that sober house. Um, and I started college while I was there as well. And I also started working in the treatment business. Uh, I went back to that 90-day treatment facility and got a job as a CD tech. My first job at 45 years old as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous was for $7.20 an hour. And I worked an overnight shift um, in a treatment center with uh, where it was me, a set of keys, a telephone, and 30 guys in early recovery. <laughs> and I started that job at 18 months sober. And at 18 months sober, I was a guy who would, who would cheerfully beat you over the head with the big book. <laughs> I was a bit too enthusiastic yeah, say on yeah. the program. I, I, uh, that being said, I think that that enthusiasm is what uh, initially kept me sober. I don't know how many, you know, I sponsored a lot of guys early on, and I don't know how many of them made it, but I know I did, so.
1: I understand. You know, I've always said I'd rather people be a little too enthusiastic as opposed to less enthusiastic because you can you can turn it back, but it's hard to ramp it up, so to speak.
0: And the early years of my recovery were um, were interesting. You know, I, I uh, my my mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's when I was about six months sober. Um, and uh, so that began that progression. And my sister was sort of in charge of that. And, and And but I was able to participate and I was able to make amends with my mother. Um, before you know, she, her memory went too bad. So my relationship with her was restored to some degree and I was able to participate at the level I was able to participate. I mean, it, I look back on it now and wish I could have done more. Um, that being said, I did, I did what I could at the time uh, as far as helping out with, with my mom. I was able to really help out with, with cleaning out her house when we moved her to a care facility. I was able to arrange some of that stuff and participate. And I remember my sister just being very grateful that, that I was finally sort of back a contributing member of the family. Um, she did pass away at, when I was two and a half years sober, and that was a difficult experience. Um, and my health condition continued to sort of um, improve and then deteriorate. And at five years sober, it was determined that I needed a triple bypass. Um, and and I, uh, I was able to navigate that process uh, where they split your sternum with a bone saw. I was able to navigate that process and with and do it sober. I was accountable about the pain meds. You know, I was able to put together a structure with my sponsor at the time and the doctors and all the people in in um, in, 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 in that process. And I've had many medical procedures since in which I've been able to navigate, um, you know, the world of, of pain medication successfully without abusing or overdosing. I, I think one of the most important things that I can say here today is is that there, there's a perception that the that pain medication is an issue for, for people in recovery. And what I would propose to you is that lack of accountability around pain medication is the problem in most cases. Um, is, it, is it inherently difficult? Yes, it is. But if you let somebody else manage the clock and the bottle of pills, you can take pain meds for as they're prescribed, for what they're prescribed, when they're prescribed, and you, you don't have to suffer needlessly. That's uh, right. I, I think the problem is is when I'm managing the clock, because I've got a I've got a watch that runs a little fast. Um and I also don't count <laughs> uh, it, two, two looks like four to me. Um and, and so that. But um that's my little rant about about pain medication.
1: Okay. Um, so I want to turn a corner a little bit. I know, uh, some, uh, I know about your background. Uh, I know a little bit about your background in that, uh, you are a member of another, uh, organization, uh, within, uh, another anonymous, uh, organization, Overeaters I Anonymous. I am. And, uh, I know that you're involved in a group, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, called division vision for you. Or I am. I, okay. So talk to me a little. So, here is really where I'm trying to bridge, and that is there are a lot of people who have uh, difficulties, if you will, or struggles within Alcoholics Anonymous. And some of them are dying within the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Absolutely. And so I, I just want to get your um, uh, perspective, your experience on that, uh, how sure. you made it into OA, and just your story in that arena.
0: Um, I would I would love to share that with you. It turns out, John, that food was probably my first drug. Um, I clearly remember getting caught stealing a candy bar out of a grocery store when I was about four years old, and, and most people would think that's just a mis- mischievous kid. Um, but I went back and figured out how to do it without getting caught, and I did it almost every day as long as I needed to. Uh, I had an addiction to sugar um, very early on in my life, and then I discovered beverage alcohol would do what I needed it to do, change my internal condition quicker. And and, and and I sort of did a combo dance with food and alcohol. Alcohol presented as the primary problem, because it turns out when you get drunk, you do a bunch of stupid stuff. When you When you overeat, you just kind of go to sleep or do whatever, you don't do the dumb stuff. So alcohol was always assumed to be my problem, but I had a problem with food and weight my whole life. I was always about 50 to 60 pounds overweight. Yeah.
1: And was that part of the triple bypass? Uh... Yes,
0: absolutely. And post-triple bypass, I remember very clearly in the recovery room thinking, well, I can't drink anymore, but now I can eat whatever I want. Mm. And I began to do that with some enthusiasm, um, in, in addictive enthusiasm. Um, <laughs> and I put on in the next six years, uh, after a triple bypass, I put on 150 now, I don't know any cardiologists that recommend adding 150 pounds to a to a, a post bypass recovery process, but that's the way it ended up looking for me. And in 2015, I was at the uh, International Alcoholics Anonymous Convention weighing 385 pounds and unable to really navigate the convention center in Atlanta, which was huge, was just a giant place. Successfully on my feet, I couldn't walk more than 500 or 1,000 feet at a time without needing to rest. Um, But if you asked me at the time, and if you asked me during that period of time in the rooms, how I was doing, my report to you would be that I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And the truth was is that my spiritual condition was degrading. I wasn't practicing the principles of of, uh, 10, 11, and 12 in my life with any sort of um, rigor. Um, you know, if if things got really bad, I'd, I'd shoot out a quick inventory and call my sponsor, but I, I didn't really have a prayer and meditative life. Um, I was carrying the message because that made me appear to be a responsible AA member. And for me, I'm the actor who leads a double life and I can do that in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I think we've got rooms full of people who are attached to their time, um, and, and the time can be the, the enemy of the alcoholic, in, in my opinion, in my experience. Um, I, got, I got hooked to the idea that I had multiple years and double digit years and, and that I wasn't supposed to be suffering or struggling with anything. I was supposed to represent something other than just being a garden variety alcoholic who may have other struggles. Um, so at the 2015 um, International AA Convention, I was sitting on a bench sweating profusely and, and um, you know, kind of wheezing from, from having efforted some walk. Um, and an acquaintance of mine who I'd met at many, uh, many conventions over the years um, approached me and, and we hugged and her husband was there and he said, hey, you know, sit with her for a minute. Um, I'm going to go get us some coffee and a sandwich for those two. Um, I had just finished a, a, I don't know, a pizza by myself or something. I don't know what, but anyway. Um so she sat down with me and she, she looked at me and, and, and she asked me how I was doing and I said fine and you know um she looked me straight in the eye and, and said uh, you're full of bleep. Uh and I broke um right there and and she began to twelve-step me into the fellowship of, of Overeaters Anonymous. At the time I didn't know that she was a member of Alcoholic or Overeaters Anonymous. I had always assumed she was an AA. Uh, person, but she came to AA convention because she liked to talk about the big book, she liked the enthusiasm, she liked the fellowship, and her husband was a uh, member of Alcoholics Anonymous in recovery, but she was a, a member of um, this this uh, fellowship called Overeaters Anonymous. Uh, she told me about A Vision for You, which is a big book, an online and on phone big book um, meeting that happens on a daily basis, seven days a week. Um, It's a very vibrant um, speaker based meeting uh, in which they typically get somewhere in the neighborhood of three to 700 participants on a daily basis, depending on which call you get on. There's two different times. It's a, it's a vision for you. Uh, OA, a vision for you is the website. If you just Google that, you'll find it. And it's, it's a big book based um, part of the fellowship and every two years they have a convention. Um, the way I was introduced to you is through a tape. Uh, I was asked to speak at their convention uh, a little over a year ago. Yep, um, and Mary
1: Jo got me in contact yep, with you. Yep, mm-hmm. and Mary
0: Jo got, um, Kathy Jo, I think got you. Kathy Jo,
1: I apologize, Kathy, yes. Yeah,
0: Kathy Jo got you in touch with, with me um, based on that recording. Um, but I, uh, I went home from that encounter and initially, of course, like any good um, addict or alcoholic, I, I resisted taking direction. Um, and I overate, I continued to just eat the way I'd been eating for about another month. And then I hit a level of desperation around it that was similar to the bottom that I hit with alcohol. I I knew I was killing myself. I had, I, by this time I developed type two diabetes in a pretty serious way. And the medical indicators were, were that I was, you know, on my way to dying. And and again, I'll say to you, John, you know, I'm a guy that will report to you that I want to die, but the truth is that I don't want to die. I just want the pain to stop. Um, and, and food had helped me treat my internal condition after my, you know, I, I had some grief. I had at year four, I had a couple of sponsees die. At uh, year two and a half, I had my mother die. At year seven, I had my brother die in my arms. I had some unresolved stuff that I was just trying to tough out. And I thought working the steps would treat everything. Well, what working the steps does is keep us sober and allow us to go out to these other qualified people in the world to deal with maybe some of the other stuff. Um, and I wasn't doing that. And that's why I think the food was, 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 such, was, was so, um, prominent in, in my life. Um, I can't like, so back to how I got into OA I came home and it turns out my home group's about a mile and a half from my house. <laughs> I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a version of alcoholic or overeaters anonymous called OA how, which is a very rigorous, um, big book based version of it. We, we adhere um, very strictly to a food plan that's given to us by a nutritionist. I report my food on a daily basis. I do an assignment out of the AA literature every day uh, that I report to my uh, sponsor. Um, and if anybody on this podcast is ever interested in understanding more about that, you can ask John for my contact information and, and I'm happy to share it with you.
1: That's right. Now forward it on. So I'm about to dive into an area that I know very little about. Uh, uh, I know enough to be dangerous, so to speak. But aren't there, how do you put this, various methodologies within OA of how you actually work that program? There
0: are. There are what we call traditional Overeaters Anonymous, which is sort of the traditional um, thing. And the the interesting thing about this, John, is, is that it turns out that you can't stop eating um really bad stuff happens to you if you just stop eating. <laughs> in alcoholics <laughs> anonymous we get to stop drinking. Um, right. so we can eliminate the problem. Uh in in um in overeaters anonymous you have to as as we like to say we we have to uh we have to walk the tiger 3 times a day. Right. And you got to make sure that tiger doesn't jump you. So we for me I I, I do a version called OA How, which is very, very rigid and very strict um, tool-based thing that's all based on the information in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, There are several different forms of OA. I'm not as familiar. I walked right into How. How appealed to me because it was so rigid and disciplined and and structured. Um, It it removed any questions about what I was going to eat. I get to eat six times a day. I actually eat a volume of food that's 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 more than what I ate when I was gaining weight. It's just different, better food. But I, we actively work with a nutritionist. I have a nutritionist that does my food plan with me every three months. We review it um, and I don't put anything in my mouth that I'm not accountable to my sponsor and OA for. Not all forms of Overeaters Anonymous are that rigid. Um, because of the way different people react to different foods, some people can manage what they take in, some overeaters, some members of Overeaters Anonymous can even successfully navigate sugar. I am not one of those people. Um, I am a an avowed sugar addict. Um, you know, you put sugar in me, and it has the same effect that a shot of liquor does. Um, you know, uh, I think Bob Bob D uh, out of Las Vegas put it as once that that I put a. Um, for me, um, drinking, drinking your overeating is like, like having sex with a gorilla. We're not done until the gorilla says we are. Uh, <laughs> That's right. So so um, for me, sugar, if I put sugar in my system, I'm not done until the sugar says I'm done. And it, So it's the same action that I have with alcohol. Um, not everybody has that level of sensitivity. So it's, it's a bit of a, a dance for some people to find a version of OA that they like. What I would say to you is that if you're struggling with any sort of an eating disorder, be it be it anorexia, be it bulimia, be it overeating, be it obesity, be it binge eating, be it sugar addiction, whatever it may be, Overeaters Anonymous has a viable solution for you. Um, and and to just begin to explore that, there is a website just like with AA. There's a there's a international um, um, website, a national website. Um, its its structure is taken much from away. Um, at the beginning of, of Overeaters Anonymous. Um, she, uh, Rose, uh, who was one of the founders, had a lot of interactions with the men who began Gamblers Anonymous. As a matter of fact, that's because she didn't want to go to AA because of it, it was, she believed that initially the addiction was a process addiction, like gambling is, um, that there's this action we take. Um, so that's how she, and then fits and starts it started. You can look into the history, at your leisure, but but yes, you're right. There are several different ways to manage a food plan in Overeaters Anonymous, Um, but it's all based on the 12 steps and 12 traditions of AA. Um, It is a fundamentally, it's a 12 step fellowship. Um, The difference is, is that we do have to eat. So there are some different parameters that we have to approach.
1: Yes. So talk to me a little bit. Of, when you have a date, so to speak, in Overeaters Anonymous, and do you have a date in OA yes, as I well? Do.
0: I do. My uh, my abstinence date is um, is uh, my back-to-back abstinence. I entered um, Overeaters Anonymous, how, on uh, August 10th of, of 2015. Uh, while I was hospitalized last year, I had a slip. Um, so my back-to-back abstinence date in OA, I was able to get right back on the train the next day, fortunately for me. Um, My back-to-back abstinence date in a way how is August 20th of 2018.
1: Okay, so... That's what we
0: call our sobriety in Overeaters Anonymous is abstinence from overeating.
1: Okay, so... So abstinence from overeating, does that mean, does that mean you kind of evaluate what your triggers are? And then as long as you stay away from those particular triggers, like sugar or whatever it is, that is your date?
0: That, that can be part of it. Um, for me, I, I very specifically weigh and measure everything I eat. Now that sounds like a lot of work. It's really very easy. Um, like today I, I, I read my menu to my sponsor this morning. Um, and I eat six times a day. I have three meals and three snacks, three healthy snacks. Uh, and I very specifically weigh and measure all the food that I eat because that's what works for me. Um, other people can eat just a meal. They can eyeball what they put on their plate. That I'm not one of those people. Um, it turns out, like I said, my counter is a little off. Um, you know, What looks like four ounces to you um, would probably look like half an ounce to me. Um, what looks like four ounces to me is a, is a 16 ounce sirloin. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, 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 that speaks to sort of that internal brokenness around the food. It, it's very, very similar to, you know, I, I, always thought a shot of whiskey came in a bottle with a hand, handle on it, right? right. Uh, <laughs> so it, 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 it's kind of the same way with food for me. So abstinence is declared by members of Overeaters Anonymous in many different ways. I adhere to how and how is very specific in what it asks of its members. Um, it is a very um, uh, disciplined and rigid way to do OA, but it is also one of the most effective at losing. I lost 170 pounds and have kept it off for, you know, the better part of two years.
1: That's so, fantastic. So, yeah. you
0: know, I, I'm, I went from 385 pounds down to 215. Uh, my type two diabetes is in full remission. Um, All my other health numbers, Um, I was on the maximum dose of of those heart medications that I still have to take today post-surgery. I am now on the lowest recommended dose of each of those medications. Um, And and more importantly, I think um, I've I've achieved a level of spiritual fitness through working this rigorous um, 10, 10, 11, and 12 process that we do in OA Um, that is different. I thought I had reached some spiritual fitness in AA. I was mistaken. Um, I now know what it feels like to be truly free and to have um, a meaningful, fulfilling relationship with a power greater than myself um, and, and to be fully present to my life and to other people's lives, more importantly. Um, it's improved my ability to, to effectively execute my profession It's, 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 it's allowed me to, to get a master's this May um, at 59 years old. Um, I know I don't, I couldn't be doing that if I was still in the food, as they say. Um, So, so this, I really believe it was my manifest destiny to be a member of two fellowships. It's not something I recommend to anybody. Um, If you think me having to go to OA at 11 years sober in AA was my idea, you're out of your mind. And if you think I wasn't a little cranky about it for about six months, you're out of your mind. Um, but I kept, I, I went because I knew they had something that, that I wanted, which was that freedom that they spoke of. I am an active member of both fellowships. Um, I, I have maintained my, my, my good standing in both fellowships. And what that looks like is I have a home group, group in each that I attend each week, I sponsor people in each. I read the big book with other people in each and I participate in efforts like this to carry the message in each.
1: Um, very nice. Yeah. So one other question, that picture behind you? Yes. What is that picture?
0: That is uh, a photograph of Miles Davis.
1: That's who um, that is.
0: Yes, the, the very famous um, jazz trumpeter who is one of my heroes. I'm, I'm a big music aficionado. Um, and that's a that's a photo I've had that. Oh God, I bet I've had that for at least thirty years. Um, and it was taken by Anton Corbin, which is the name across the top. But yeah, it's a photograph of of, uh, of Miles Davis.
1: Yeah, I love the photo. It de- yeah. definitely draws you in. Yeah, yes. of Those eyes.
0: Those Miles had quite a gaze. Um, and 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 you know if he shot that gaze at you, you, you knew something was up. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, he was he was one of my heroes. I was able to see him live, play live on a on a, on a number of occasions as a younger man. So I'm uh, I'm grateful that I have that.
1: So on a more personal note, what would be one thing you believe that people may not know about you that may be uh, something they would like to know?
0: That at my core. What what recovery did for me was bring out the innocence of a helpful little boy. You know, little kids want to help each other, right? They have a natural they can be mean, but they can be there there's there's always this help I had a helpfulness when I was a young when I was a young kid and, and alcoholism beat that down. And what, what, it, what it's done for me is bring out that enthusiastic, helpful boy. I'm of service in a, in a number of different ways in my life. I'm in service at my college, I'm in service in my work. I sleep in the service of others. I have a little overnight side hustle job that I do that, that, where I actually sleep in a mental health facility for emergency calls. Um, you know, I, I'm just able to be that, that I really love being of service and, and helping other people. Um, not just in my fellowships as an as a, as a idea of rote, but that really that's where my heart is, is that what I receive when I'm in the service of another human being is greater than anything that I've ever found. Um, and I think that that's what I would like people to know, that if, you, if you're willing to dig down in this thing and, and find yourself, what you'll find is, is a heart that's willing to give. And when you give, you receive in, 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 at a high level.
1: God bless you, Patrick. This has been a uh, a most, most enjoyable conversation. Thank you, John. I know that. Good, good. I know that the listeners uh, in all corners of the world are going to enjoy this. I sure do appreciate you coming on today. God bless you, my friend. You're welcome. So what'd you think about Mr. Patrick there? I think he is an incredible soul with an incredible spirit. And uh, I just so did appreciate spending time with him. So feel free to reach out to me at j o h n at soberspeak.com. I would love to hear from you about Patrick and or any of the other speakers. So now let's get on to a little bit of listener feedback and wrap this one up for the week. Tracy, Writes in on Instagram. She says, listen to you every night since I found you. Love the format. Sober nine years and just started going to meetings in November. Hello from Phoenix. Tracy, well, sober nine years and just started going to meetings. I would love to hear... What life is like either before and after going to meetings, and what that first nine years was like, Miss Tracy. Write back to me. Let me know. All right. Beverly writes in, and she says, "Hi, John. Just listen to Gary K. All I can say is, wow, W O W in all cap letters with an exclamation more exclamation point." I was mesmerized. I will be listening to him again and again and maybe after that exclamation point. Anyway, Gary Kay is uh, quite the treat. I'm so glad you enjoyed uh, listening to Gary uh, Beverly. Uh, Matt S. writes in and Matt says, my name is Matthew S. Two years ago, I was married Three kids, a house, and all the nice things that went with it. Today, I am divorced, have my kids 50% of the time, and I'm living in an apartment. I just recently got a job, and I am honestly 11 days sober. Oh, wow, man. I was sober prior for almost a month, but had one beer. I was so mad at myself for starting over and I'm done. With my divorce and losing my job, I went back into a deep spin of alcoholism. My alcoholism was always there, but it ramped up and dumped me right on my head on the way to a rock bottom. I am new to AA and your podcast. I'm starting with the AA meetings, and I'm also part of a dad's alliance group that helps me tremendously. I am excited about the future, Your podcast helps me until I can get to the quote next meeting, unquote, when I have my kids or I can't get away. I found your podcast in a search for AA. I live in La Habra, H A B R A, hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, California, and I work in Orange County. Matt, Well, Matt asks, I'm excited for your future as well. Uh, Thank you for the honesty. Thank you for the vulnerability. Um, And uh, God bless you. Please keep me posted. Jorge writes in, and sometimes I see Jorge pronounced as George nowadays. It's either Jorge or George, J-O-R-G-E. But anyway, he writes in, he says, John, I live in Jacksonville, Florida. I got sober in Springfield, Massachusetts. Sobriety date is May 16, 2008. I'm an active member of AA. I have went through the 12 steps as laid out, as laid out in the big book with the sponsor, and I work 10, 11, and 12 on a daily basis. I found Soberspeak when one of my Facebook friends shared it on their profile, Jorge. Well, that is fantastic, Jorge. Uh, I am glad everything is working out from you. I like how uh, pithy you are with your uh, message, and I'm glad things are working out for you. All right, Janice writes in, So, I have been, I have had, I have some listener feedback for the podcast from Ken H. I really like the show where he said, For us, the process of gaining a new perspective is unbelievably painful in sobriety. The turmoil that comes out of the nature of huge emotional rearrangements and displacements uh, can be tough. Spiritual growth is turbulent. It's our higher power taking us where we need to be. I've listened to that a few times now, and it's exactly what I'm going through. Thank you so much for doing this podcast. It has helped me out so much. Janice P. Well, thanks for writing in, Janice P., and I will pass along your good words to Mr. Ken H. Carol writes in I'm five months sober and working the steps with my sponsor. I live in Sultan, Washington, and I spend a lot of time traveling with my husband, helping charities and civility. Due to not being able to always make it to a ma- meeting, I asked others, and I found out some ideas about how to keep me sober, and Sober Speak was brought to my attention. I have listened to the few, a few of the episodes, and I'm thankful you added me to the Facebook group. Thank you, Carol. Well, the pleasure is all mine, Miss Carol. I'm glad you were able to join that Facebook group. All right, everybody. So that's a wrap for this week. We'll probably see you next week. (laughs) I always say for me, this is one week at a time. Now, I've been saying that now for uh, 70 plus weeks, and I've always been able to get out an episode, but... I guess I'll have an episode out next week. (laughs) We'll just take it one week at a time, just like I take my sobriety one day at a time. God bless you and keep you until then.
0: Bye-bye.